good evening, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, a special welcome from me as well. Whether you're joining us here in a worship center, maybe you're out in the patio, maybe you're joining us online. But before we go into our time of teaching, I've got one important announcement. You may have noticed this, but inside your program today, you have this uh, handout on worldview. Uh, reasonable faith in an uncertain world. So if you were here at the beginning of the year, uh, we did an opening series on worldview uh, to help us understand like what's going on in our culture, how do we respond to that as followers of Jesus? And I promised you that we, this was gonna be a new emphasis. We're gonna seek the Lord on like how, how do we develop this and, and kind of make worldview teaching and apologetics kind of more of a core part of our church. And so uh, what we're doing is we, we, we contacted Biola University. They were excited about this and they're partnering with us to, um, to do a speaker series. It's going to be on Tuesday nights in, um, in August. Every Tuesday night for August, we are bringing in um, eight world-class speakers uh, to address nine critical issues uh, that help us uh, understand our faith, how to share our faith, and, and uh, how to defend it in the midst of a culture that's increasingly anti-Jesus. You may remember we, we used the book by Natasha Crane. Natasha's one of those speakers, but J.P. Moreland, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. The, the so here's the deal. It's only $29 a person for all of these. Uh, and I would encourage you to sign up uh, for this early because Biola's going to be advertising this, and I wanted our people, this, we're doing this for our people, right? So we want to make sure that you don't lose out um, because uh, you know you didn't sign up fast enough, and we have to cut off signups or something. So on the bottom, in the back here is your QR code. That's one way uh, that'll take you to your you know your personalized Rocky Peak uh, sign in uh, on the app. You can go on the app. You can go on our website. But we wanted to get this to you early as you're planning out your summer um, because it is an incredible opportunity, and so we're very excited about that. So just wanted to announce that. All right, so we're going to go into our time of teaching, and I don't know if Joel mentioned it or not, but if not, uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. For those of you joining us online, depending on the format, whether you're watching YouTube or you're watching through our website, either at the top or the bottom, there's a message uh, note sheet link. You can click on that and then download your favorite. There's like three different options of format. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Let's pray. So Father, we're excited to be here in your house uh, underneath your leadership and underneath the empowering of your Holy Spirit where we remember, Lord, what you say in your word that when we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus that the power of the Lord is there. Amen. And you said that where two or three are gathered, you would be here. So we just acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge your presence. You said, call no man teacher, for you have one teacher. We just acknowledge that if we're going to grow in our lives, it's really because it's the result of the Holy Spirit's work in us and opening our eyes. And so we just say, Lord, we're like, like you said, that without you, we can do nothing. Um, you are the vine, we're the branches. We're completely dependent on your sap flowing into us. And so we pray that uh, today, as we unpack your word, that you'd be speaking to each of us uh, by your spirit, according to our need, to help us take our next step in our journey of following you, being transformed to be like you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in a, a far and distant land. It's an ancient city. In fact, it's one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. And uh, he, he's traveled here on a very important mission. Um, he's 
passionate about this mission. Um, and he arrived three days ago. Uh, but, but at this point in time, um, that seems like another life. So you were to see him right now, he's sitting in a dark room. He is confused. He doesn't know which way to turn. In fact, he's so dejected that he hasn't eaten anything for three days. And he still isn't even hungry. As he looks into the future, everything looks confused. And as he sits here in the dark, just trying to figure out what has happened and what it all means, little does he know that in about 15 minutes, there's going to be a knock at the front door. And a man that he's never met, a visitor is going to come, and he's going to bring him two gifts. They're going to change the direction of his life forever. Well, today we are continuing this new series that we kicked off last week that's called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, whether you're here on our campus or you're joining us online, um, this is an in-depth study of one of, the, one of the most important letters literally written ever in the history of the world. It's written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul, or we call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers, most of whom he's never met. They live in the capital city of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. It's about a million inhabitants, population about a million right now. And so we, we call this letter uh, the letter to the Romans. And it's, it's part of one, of one of Paul's letters in the second half of our, or second part of our, our uh, Bible that we call the New Testament. And so uh, today we're going to launch into the first half of Paul's long intro. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. So if you have your Bibles, you have your note sheets, let's go ahead and open up, turn on. There in your note sheet is a section called the Gospel, the, the gospel of God, the Introduction. Um, and, and so let me, let me set it up. So when Paul starts his letters, uh, his intros are often very strategic. Um, you, you may not notice, it's easy to miss this. It, it could seem kind of random what he says. But actually, it's almost like going to, uh, to a movie theater and watching a preview of coming attractions. That what he's doing uh, often in this intro is introducing key concepts that he's going to unpack later in greater depth in the letter. And if that's true in most of Paul's 13 letters, it is especially true in this letter. And the reason is, remember that uh, he's never been to Rome. He doesn't know these people. And so um, the message that Paul brings um, and his claim to be an apostle is very controversial and often he is criticized, his message is often criticized, it's often misrepresented. And so as he's writing to these people, most of whom he's never met, we all know this, right, that you only get one chance to make a first impression. <laughs> and when, it's, when you're a controversial person, you better make it, make it a good one. And so this intro is going to be longer than any other intro in Paul's letters as he introduces himself and his message, what he calls the gospel of God. And it's very strategic. And because of that, we're going to be spending the next six weeks, so this week and five more weeks, in the first seven verses. Right? 
So there in your, uh, you, so with that as a kind of an intro, let's go ahead and jump in. Some of you are still, still reeling. <laughs> yes, it's like, whoa, what did I get myself into? Uh, no, I promise, it's gonna be good. Uh, so, so he starts off, uh, Paul, um, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Remember that Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. And so sometimes it's used more like a name. Sometimes it's used in an official sense as Messiah. You can kind of tell by the context usually. But so I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, and I'm called to be a what? An apostle. So we're going to come back to that later today. And I'm set apart for what? The gospel of God. Okay, so did you catch that? This whole letter is about the gospel of God. That's what he's going to be doing, unpacking the gospel of God. And of course, that's where we get the title for the series from. And he says, now this gospel is nothing new. Um, When Jesus came, his life and ministry and the way it unfolded and the way the early church is unfolding is very different than most in Israel would have expected the promises of God to be fulfilled. But he says, this is nothing new. It may seem new, but it's actually not new. This is the eternal plan of God. And so he says, this gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the ones in the Hebrew Bible, what we would call our Old Testament. And he says, it's regarding his son. So the gospel is all about Jesus. It, it all leads up to Jesus. It leads, all leads out of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection is the turning point of human history. And that's what the gospel is about. It's like understanding the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he goes on and he says, it's regarding his son who, what, uh, uh, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Of course, the Messiah was uh, prophesied to become from the line of David and who through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit was appointed or in the Greek designated or marked out as the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus did many amazing miracles, but the ultimate sign was his resurrection from the dead. And and that's what all of Christianity is based on. You take that away, there is no Christianity. This is the ultimate sign that God was saying, this is my son, listen to him. And so he says, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Of course, uh, Lord is, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord, Right, so it's a, it's a regal title, it's a ruling title. And he says, now through him, through Jesus, we've received grace. And so most scholars believe that when Paul says we, he's really using an editorial we here, that he's really talking about me. Um, but uh, through him, we received grace and apostleship. So second time he mentions this, through Jesus, he's claiming that, that I received grace and I received apostleship. And the reason I've received this is to call all the Gentiles, right? So Paul's primary calling as an apostle was to share the message of Jesus with non-Jewish people. Now, he would share it with Jewish people, but his primary calling was to share with non-Jewish people. And he says, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And so one of the criticisms of Paul, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 6, is that hey, if we're really saved by, uh, by Christ's performance, not our performance, so why don't we just sin 
more so that we get more grace. And uh, Paul's going to respond to that. But right here at the beginning, he's letting you know that the gospel, as I said last week, is not just an invitation to be forgiven by the Savior. It's a command to repent before the king. The gospel is about, like, true faith leads to obedience. And if it doesn't, it's not true faith. Right, we'll, we'll be talking about that more later in the series. Okay, and he says all of this was for his name's sake. So Paul's uh, calling to be an apostle and call, it's all for Jesus' sake. And he said, and you also, talking to those in Rome, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. And so notice, remember last week we talked about this. Most scholars believe that. That, that most of the Christians in Rome at this time were Gentiles. There was a Jewish minority, but there were Gentiles. And this is, there's like hints of that all through the letter. And so, so you can see it right away here at the beginning. He just refer, he's writing this letter to all of them, but he just refers to them as Gentiles, right? So he says, uh, so uh, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And he said, and now this is to all. So maybe that means, maybe he's throwing in Jews at this point. We're not sure. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now, here's the thing. In ancient letters at this time, usually an ancient letter would start with who it's from, and then it would include who it's to, and then there would typically be a word of, like, welcome, a word of greeting. In Greek, it would say karain. Uh, The word charis is grace. So karain is like greeting, and so Paul is going to, usually in his letters, introduce him like a traditional, like a, like a letter would be. Here it's from Paul, but here, notice what he does is that he's got so much to say to these people. He starts in verse 1 by saying it's from Paul, right? But he doesn't get down to, until verse 7 to who it's to, right? So he's kind of filled in a lot, but when he gets there, now he's finishing it to all in Rome who are loved by God, and it's a beautiful word. It's a word agapitas, and you may recognize that because of the word agape, right? And so he's going to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, I know two things about you. And the first is that you're his agapitas. You're his loved one. And then he goes on, he says, and the second thing I know about you is you're called to be holy. That he's calling you out of this dark and evil world to be transformed, purified, Become the people you are created to be, to live the life you are created to live, to be like your father. And so he says, uh, called to be his holy people. And so now he gets to this traditional, great, traditional greeting. So in, in Greek letters, a traditional greeting would be karein. Instead, he says charis, grace. And in a Hebrew letter, the traditional greeting would be shalom, or peace. And so he throws them both in grace and peace. And of course, um, these are two key words that really, in some ways, summarize the message of the gospel, that, that through Jesus and through his performance on the cross, that we have received grace, and that we, we've, we've transitioned from enemies of God to sons and daughters, that we, we are now at peace. The way I like to say it, we now live at a place called grace. Right? That's our permanent address. And so... He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, right? We've come into this new relationship. We're now children of God. He'll talk about that in chapter 8. We've been adopted into his family. 
and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts them all together. The king, the king, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And with that, he... He's going, to kind of, he's going to change direction now in his intro and start talking about his travel plans and why he wants to see them and their reputation and so on. And so like I said, what I want to do in the next six weeks, this week and five more, is I want to focus on these, um, th- this uh, intro to the letter. Because in this intro, Paul is introducing himself. He's introducing this message, the gospel of God. Um, but he's also using introducing some key words and phrases that are really critical to understand the message of the Apostle Paul. And so you can almost look at these words as like a window into Paul's worldview and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So what we're going to be doing is is doing a deep dive in some of these key words that are a, a window into his worldview, not only in Romans, but in all of his writings, as I promised last week, all right? So the word on the table today is this word apostolos. You've got there on your, on your note sheet, gospel words apostolos. So the first word we're going to tackle is uh, this word apostolos. Now, of course, uh, that's a Greek word. From it, obviously, we get our word apostle. And this is an extremely important word to the apostle Paul. And catch this, you'll see as we go along, this is an extremely important word for us as followers of Jesus today to understand what this word means and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Paul's going to use this word twice in the intro. So remember, he's introducing him to himself to people who don't know him. And yet twice in seven verses, he's going to make this claim to be an apostle. So he starts off in verse one. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a what? Yeah, apostolos, right? And then you get down to verse five, and through him, through Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship, right? So right at the beginning, um, Paul is making a big deal that he is an apostle. He's writing as an apostle of Jesus. So like, why is this so important? And what does this word mean to Paul? And why does it play such a critical role in the gospel of God and what it means for us to be a follower of Jesus. So I want to start and just talk about this this word a little bit, all right? So this word, first of all, apostolos, in the first century was not a religious word. It was just a normal word for apostle is someone who's sent with a message, an envoy, probably not as big as an ambassador, but it's just you're someone sent with a message. And so the New Testament will use that word. Like if we had more time today, which we don't, but if we had more time, I'd give you three or four examples. But on your note sheet, I put one, I didn't put it, I just put the reference in, John 13. Jesus talks about, you know, Jesus uses, he uses the word apostle to just describe a messenger. And it happens often in the New Testament. Uh, The second way that it's often used, and it became, this, this kind of developed in the early church, was, was talking about kind of a, a significant leadership role in the church. Now, it's interesting, when it's used in this way, it's not really defined. But you will see, like, for example, I put another reference there in Romans 16. Paul will refer, he'll say, hey, say, say hi to Andronicus and to Junia. Uh, they were apostles. We were in prison together. So say hi to them. They were they're apostles, and they were in the Lord. They came to Jesus before I came to Jesus. So they've, they've been, all right, so, he'll, so, the, so the New Testament will sometimes use this word apostles in sort of a generic sense to talk about key church leaders, but they're not, it doesn't really describe even what they do. So we've got to kind of make our best. Maybe they're church planters, maybe they started several churches and they're overseeing that, but we don't really know. It's not really defined. 
But the most important way that this word is used is to describe the 12 disciples of Jesus that Jesus chose from out of all the rest of his disciples to be with him, to be part of his inner circle, for him to train in ministry, and then when he left, to turn over the leadership of his movement to them. And so, for example, in the Gospels, there in, in Luke chapter 6, here's one example. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God. Now, he had a very important decision to make. Of all these disciples, which are the 12 key people that I'm going to turn this movement over to? I'm going to train and invest. Of course, we're going to lose one, Judas, right? That was all part of the plan. But, we're going to, but like, who are the, the guys? So he's going to spend the night in prayer discerning this. And so um, when morning came, he called his disciples, talking about all of his followers, and, uh, and he says he chose 12 of them that he also designated what? Apostles. Apostles, right? And so then Luke begins to name them Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, right? So he's going to go out and list them all. And so this, these, these are the 12 men, kind of 12 <laughs> minus 1, that, that Jesus is going to turn his movement over to. And they're going to play a major leadership role in the movement of Jesus. They're going to speak for Jesus with his authority because they're communicating his teaching to those who follow. So you see this, for example, in Acts chapter 2, when the early church is started. And so uh, 10 days before this, Jesus had ascended into heaven. The church has been in prayer now for 10 days, just seeking the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, as you remember, the Holy Spirit comes they begin uh, praising God in languages they'd never learned. There's Jews from all over the world. Uh, there for Pentecost, they gathered together. Peter gives his first sermon. 3,000 men give their lives to Jesus. They, they, I believe he is the Messiah. I'm going to follow him. And so the movement is started. And, and so Luke tells us right away, hey, here were the four priorities of the early followers of Jesus. And there in your note sheet, in Acts 2, or yeah, Acts 2, it says, these new believers, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, right? So, so they become followers of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. They'd already done that. He says, and teach them to obey everything I taught you. And so the apostles are now the teachers of the early church, the authoritative teachers, to teach everyone what Jesus had taught them. So here's what I want you to catch. So what is the Apostle Paul claiming about himself? Is he claiming he's just some messenger? No. Is he claiming just to be kind of one of the apostles, one of, the, one of many church leaders? No. He's claiming more to be like one of the 12. He's claiming that he had a personal encounter with Jesus where he was chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles and commissioned, and his message, the message of Jesus was communicated to him um, so that he's speaking for Jesus. That's his claim. The question is, well, how do we know it's true? Like, like how did that happen? When did that happen? And so to, to, to catch this, we have to know a little bit more backstory on the apostle Paul. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Apostles, the Apostolos, Paul's calling. 
So we're just going to do a quick overview of Paul's life. We don't have time for it. But first of all, you know, Paul was born into a Jewish family. His name, his Jewish name is Saul. Remember, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the first king of Israel was called Saul. He was the most famous guy. And so, so Paul was named after this great leader, at least for a while. Um, and, and so his name's Saul, right? So he's born into this Jewish family. He lives in a very upscale, very highly respected university city that's in modern-day Turkey. It was a Greco-Roman Hellenistic city, uh, and the name of the city was Tarsus, right? But at an early age, and we don't know exactly what age, either his family moved to Jerusalem or they sent him, like the boarding school, they sent him to Jerusalem for his education so he could study under one of the top, most famous rabbis of the day, a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel... Uh, and, and so Paul excelled at his studies. Uh, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. You remember Jesus often had controversy with the Pharisees. They were an extremely passionate, zealous group, zealous for God, zealous for his honor, uh, extremely committed to the law, but also their man-made traditions. And so Paul becomes a Pharisee, um, and he begins to rise in Jewish culture in Jerusalem as kind of one of the young eagles you know, one of the most respected up-and-coming leaders. Well, so when the movement of Jesus breaks out about 30 AD, Paul's living, or Saul's living in Jerusalem, and he, along with the Jewish establishment, they all see this Jesus and this movement as a heretical, dangerous movement. And so they want to do everything they can to stomp it out, and so Paul receives authority from the top religious leaders to be one of the key leaders to persecute the early church. So we're told that he's going house to house looking for Christians. I, I, I'm, it kind of reminds me of like Nazi Germany or something. They're, they're going looking for Jews. Paul's doing that, but he's looking for Jews who are followers of Jesus the Messiah. And we're told uh, in other places that when he would arrest them, he would interrogate them, he would try to force them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now, uh, that sounds like beatings to me. It sounds like torture, some kind of threats. I know, but that's what it says. So he for, he tried to force them to blaspheme. And then when they came up for trial, he would vote for their execution. Um, so he was a man on fire. And, uh, and so after this persecution is released in Jerusalem in the early church, we're still like a, a year or two into this movement. Christians are running for their lives. And Paul, uh, Saul begins to chase them down to foreign cities. And, and on one of those journeys, he's approaching the, the, the walls of the, one of the oldest cities in the world, the Damascus, when all of a sudden he has this radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And of course, this takes us back to the story that we started the day with about this man who's arrived in this city on a very important mission. He's passionate about three days ago. But he's now sitting in the dark. He hasn't eaten in three days. He has no desire to eat. This is my version of the Apostle Paul. This rocked his world in a way that I don't think any of us can, will probably ever be able to understand. And what he doesn't know on that third day is that Jesus is sending him a messenger who's going to bring two gifts. Well, the first gift is after this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, the brilliance of his body blinded Paul, Saul, so the first gift he gave him was the gift of healing. He gave him back his sight. 
The second gift was a gift of the Holy Spirit. And he was baptized. Now, years later, Paul would describe this chain of events when he was on trial before a king named Agrippa. And he was being held in Caesarea, the seaport of Caesarea. And and I want to read you this account that uh, Luke gives us. He says, uh, in Acts 26, he says, on one of these journeys... I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And it was about noon, King Agrippa. I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, which is the kind of first language of Palestine, of uh, what's called Judea at the time. Um, he said, so in other words, speaking sort of in this language of the land, if you will, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, this, Saul's blown away. Remember, Saul knows the, the Old Testament scriptures like the back of his hand. He recognizes right away, this is the Shekinah glory of God. This is like the vision that like Ezekiel had at the call of his ministry. And when Ezekiel sees, is brilliant, and in the midst of it, he sees like a, like a man. So, so Paul knows this is a divine encounter, right? He, he knows that, but he's not, he's not clear on who the man is that this brilliant light's coming from. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And I want you to catch this. When the answer comes back, it's going to rock his world. Because the answer comes back, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, I want you to catch this. This is the part, it's hard for us to understand and put ourselves back in Paul's shoes, but Paul is absolutely convinced that Jesus is a heretic. He's convinced he was a false prophet. He can't understand why anyone would believe that a Jew who is hung on a wooden Roman cross, why anyone in the world could think that that was the Messiah. The Old Testament said anyone who's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. How in the world can that be? What is wrong with you people? And he sees, he, he sees this movement spreading and taking in more people. It's like heresy, he's got to do everything he can. So he's been arresting Christians, pulling mothers away from their children, pulling fathers away from their family, having them beaten, trying to make them blaspheme and curse the name of Jesus, voting for their death, and now he's, Jesus is in the vision? He's got to think his, his life has to be flashing before his eye. He's a goner. He's a dead man. If you are a Jew, there is no worse sin than to be on the wrong side of the Messiah. And not just to be on the wrong side, but to be persecuting the Messiah by touching his followers. He's got to assume his life is over. But his life isn't over. He's going to receive grace and apostleship. And so look what happens. He says, I'm Jesus here in praise. And the Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. 
I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen. What's he seen? The resurrected Jesus. Just like the 12 saw the resurrected Jesus. He's just like two years late to the party, right? He's like two years ago, they all saw him. And he said to be a witness of what you've seen, that I'm alive, that I didn't die. I died, but I rose. I've got a new body. Like I am the king. And what you will see of me, I've got more to show you. And so he said, listen, I'll rescue you from your own people. He's going to become public enemy number one, the ultimate traitor to his nation. He said, I'll rescue you from your own people. I'll rescue you from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. Now, here's the thing. As you might imagine, that makes an awesome story. But if you don't like Paul, if you don't like the message he's bringing, he had a lot of critics. You read through his letters, or oftentimes people are questioning, was he really an apostle? You know, and if you don't like his message, like, why do you trust his message? He's just making these claims. And so Paul often had to defend his claim to be an apostle, not because he cared what people thought of him, but because if they don't buy the man, they don't buy the message. And so, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, what had happened? He had started the church as a Galatian. They came to Jesus. They experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And then these Jewish, uh, kind of Jewish believers in the Messiah, I guess you'd call them. We call them Judaizers. They came in after him and they'd say, hey, it's great you believed in Jesus. He's the Messiah. Yeah, he is a Messiah. Hey, but to fully be saved, you need to convert and become a Jew. Are you going to be circumcised? And you start following the laws, all the Jewish food laws. And the, it's like, he, no, you got to be part of the chosen people to be saved. And this is the part that, that, the, that Jesus had showed Paul so clearly that no, no, you don't have to become a Jew to be saved. We're saved by what Jesus did. And so, so Paul's writing to these people he had led to Jesus, but are now starting to follow another gospel. And look how he introduces him. Look how this intro to this letter is so different than the intro we read earlier. He says in Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, he's getting right to the point, sent not from men, not by a man, but by Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him from the dead, like right away. He's like, hey, when you're dealing with me and my gospel, you're not dealing with me, you're dealing with Jesus, right? And so then he goes on later in that first chapter, and he says, listen, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, notice that language, is always about the gospel, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, which, by the way, is a reference to the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, I knew you before in your mother's womb. But when God who set me apart, like Jeremiah, from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in my life 
so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I got my message. And I think especially this message of that Gentiles and Jews are one body. There's, there's, they don't have to become Jews to get saved. No, no, we're like one new body, one new relationship. He says, that, that wasn't from, that came from Jesus. Now, of course, that's quite the claim, but here's what's interesting. Anyone can make a claim, right? But here's what's interesting. Guess what? The rest of the apostles, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, they supported him in this. And he goes on in chapter two, and he says he talks about a trip that he took to Jerusalem like 14 years later, and he says, hey, James, that's the, the half-brother of Jesus who's now become like the head of the church of Jerusalem. James, Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, and John, remember Peter, James, and John, the inner three, they, those esteemed as pillars, like the key leaders of the early church, they gave me and my ministry partner Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What's he say? That we accept you as an apostle of Jesus. We affirm your calling. We affirm your message. We welcome you. And, and so when they recognized the grace, there it is again, that was given to me. And then they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles. Remember Paul says, I'm called to go to the Gentiles. And they should be the circumcised. They kind of said, okay, listen, this is great. Jesus has called you. We believe that. You're an apostle. Um, he's given you the message. And so why don't you, you know, you're called to the Gentiles. That's great. We'll go to the Jews. That's kind of our calling. And so great. And we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to cover the world that way. So, and so this is Paul's claim. What I want you to catch is this is Paul's claim. It was affirmed by the apostles of Jesus that Jesus had put in charge of his message that, that the apostle Paul speaks for Jesus, that he is authorized to share the message of Jesus, what he calls the gospel of God. Now, that was all groundwork, right? That was all getting us ready. Right? Are you ready? Hey. Now is where the rubber meets the road. All right. You're going to get a little uncomfortable here. All right. So here we go. The gospel of God, the key question. So, so let me give you the question, then I'm going to unpack it, all right? So here's the key question. What, or you could put who, it could be either one, what is your ultimate authority? So I'll, I'll get at this. I think this makes sense. But what is, what or who, who or what is your ultimate authority? So like if we were to have uh, a conversation at Starbucks and we were talking about some controversial issue in our culture right now, and you were telling me what you believe about this controversial issue. Maybe it's abortion. Uh, maybe it's uh, Pride Month. Uh, maybe some but some, as we're talking about it, and you're explaining your position, my question is, what is your authority? Come on. Like, what's your ultimate? Like, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you think this is a path to life that you're telling me that? What I'm asking you is, what's your worldview? Like, like, how do you see life and why do you see it that way? What's your ultimate authority? And so you, 
we've spent a long time on this word apostolos. The question is why? And here's the answer. It goes to the heart of the issue of authority. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you believe that this is a path to life? Men and women, this is such a critical question at this juncture of our culture. Our culture is falling apart. It is imploding. And you know why? Because our culture is rejecting almost all traditional forms of authority. It's rejecting to a large degree, we'll come back to this, but in some ways we're rejecting science. In some ways uh, we're rejecting history and we're rejecting the kind of wisdom of the ages, received wisdom. Um, We're rejecting religious, we're rejecting religion, right? And the end result is that we're, we're we're even rejecting reason itself and the concept of truth. I was watching a show the other day, the author said that truth has now become something, a position of the right. In other words, that only the right believes there is such a thing as truth. And to a large degree, I'm not getting real political here, I'm not saying that, I just, to a large degree, that is true. And here's what's happening in our culture, is that for the most part, the movers and shakers in our culture, the social elites, the universities, the uh, media, the uh, entertainment world, uh, business world, uh, kind of uh, kind of with woke culture, you know, woke uh, kind of um, corporate culture that we're seeing, especially this month, right? For the most part, whether they realize it or not, most of the movers and shakers in our culture have bought into a worldview that we talked about earlier this year that's called scientific materialism with a dash of postmodernism, sometimes more than a dash, um, mixed in with a little new age. And so let's think about this. That the basic tenet of scientific materialism that is the official dogma of all of our universities, all of it, right? The, the, what it claims is that everything that you see and everything that you are is a result of billions of years of random accidents. And catch us, if that's true, then it means there is no such thing as truth. And if that's true, it means there is no such thing as right and wrong. And if that's true, it means there is no such thing as meaning and purpose in life. You are fooling yourself. And so the bottom line is that, well, then what's left, and here's the message of our culture today, 
There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as right. There's no such thing as wrong. All there is is power and those who wield it. And those in power create social constructs to benefit them and keep them in power. And so what's the solution? Tear down every authority in the culture. In the hopes that something better will emerge, I'll tell you what's going to emerge, utter chaos is what's going to emerge. That's where our culture is today. That's why we're seeing what we're seeing today. There's an anti-truth, anti-history movement. And see, for us as followers of Jesus, it's completely different. For us, we have a completely different worldview. We believe that there is a creator, and can I tell you, every molecule that moves is a witness to him. Every cell in the human body is a witness to him. Every star in the universe is a witness to him. As we sang today, right? If the stars cry out, right? Because, why? Because the complexity of the universe is so great, whether you take it at the nanoparticle level or you look at the, it is so incredibly complex. There is no way in billions of years that any of it could happen. And so we believe that there is a creator, but more than that, we believe that creator has communicated. He's communicated through the nation of Israel. He's communicated through what Paul said today, the sacred prophet, the writings of the prophets. He's communicated most through his son, who he gave evidence for by raising him from the dead. And he's communicated through the designated representatives of that Messiah who was raised from the dead, the apostles. And because of that, as followers of Jesus, we believe there is such a thing as truth. And we believe there is such a thing as right, and there's such a thing as wrong, and we believe there is meaning and purpose and beauty in the universe, right? So let's go back to the question then. What is your ultimate authority? And you say, why is this so important? I'll tell you why, men and women. We are about to embark on a historic venture at this church. We are going to go into the longest letter of the Apostle Paul, and we are going to use it as a springboard into all his letters And we're going to go into the worldview of the Apostle Paul, what he calls the gospel of God, right? And he claims that he is speaking for Jesus. And the question I have for you is, what do you believe, right? Right? So, So he claims, and the apostles supported him, that he is an apostle of Jesus. So catch this, what Paul is claiming is if you reject my teaching, what I'm calling you the gospel of God, you are rejecting Jesus. That's what he's claiming. And the question is, what do you believe? And here's why it's so important. As we go through this letter, can I tell you something? There are gonna be things that you love. (laughs) 
We're going to talk about a God who comes after a rebel race and instead of wipes us out, loves us and has made a way for us to come home. I mean, what's not to love about that? Like, it's, wow, that's great. You know, we're going to love that. And we're going to talk about this, that we are saved and rescued and transformed, not by our performance, but by Jesus' performance. We're going to love that. We get to Romans 8, and Paul's going to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to understand this, that God works everything together in our life for good. Not for everyone, but for, for us, right? who love God and are called according to his purpose. We're going to love that. We get to chapter 12, and Paul begins to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has uniquely gifted you with supernatural spiritual gifts because you have meaning and purpose in life. We're going to go, yes, amen, Paul. But other times, maybe not so much. We get to chapter one, and Paul starts laying out his basic thesis. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. How do you feel about a God who has wrath? Oh, I can't believe in a God like that. Oh, really? Interesting. Interesting. What's your authority? How did you decide that? How did you decide that you can decide what God is? Like, like what makes you think that what you think about God has any correspondence to reality? Right? Like, have you, has Jesus appeared to you and given you the message? Right? At least when you weren't high, for example? Right? right? Like, like, what? Oh, I, I can't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love. I do too. But can I tell you something? A God who is pure love cannot stand evil. And his wrath is not like a, a blow-up dad, you know, he's like flying off the handle, unpredictable. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a hatred of everything that's evil and destructive, and it's a steadfast resistance. That will not exist in my world. I will, I will cleanse the world of all that's evil. Amen. That is the wrath of God. You know, well, I don't believe in a God like that. Well, okay, but what's your authority? And then Paul's going to say, outside of Jesus, there is no salvation. Because you're under the wrath of God apart from Jesus. And without him, there's no way out. Well, I don't believe in a God like that. I think all paths lead there. I think all paths lead. I think everyone, I think we're all saying the same thing. Oh, really? What's your authority? Like, how did you figure that out? You may believe it, but at least you owe me the answer of what's your authority. Why do you believe that? How about this one? We're in Pride Month, right? What about sexual ethics? Paul's going to say the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, right here, right now, against the wickedness of human beings who reject the truth about God that's revealed in nature and then create gods in their own image. And it leads to this downward death spiral in the human culture that we're seeing right now played out in front of us. It starts with spiritual confusion and then leads to sexual confusion. 
and then leads to social chaos. That's Romans 1, 18 to 32. And we're seeing it right now. Well, I think love is love. All right, what's your authority? Paul says that the wrath of God is being poured out in a race that rejects the truth about God that leads to us to believe silly things about who God is, to lose touch with the truth about who we are, created in the image of God, and then leads to a complete breakdown of social relationships. What about loving other Christians who are absolutely wrong and important but secondary issues? I can't believe anyone could be at this political party. I can't believe this. Call themselves a Christian. (laughs) Yeah, well, Paul says, hey, if you're really a strong believer, you need to love those who have it wrong on secondary issues and show your maturity by your patience with them. Well, that's not what I believe. I believe this. (laughs) Can't believe they called themselves a Christian. (laughs) What's your authority for acting that way? You see, this issue of authority is critical. Let me ask you, what is your authority? Is who has ultimate authority for how to live, what to believe, the path to life? Is it the assured results of science? We've seen how that went, COVID. Uh, how about what social elites are saying? Is that, is that your ultimate authority? What Harvard and Yale says? Uh, what's, how, about, how about popular opinion? Survey says, is that how you decide? Uh, how about this? Well, that's not how I was raised. Is that your authority? Like your parents are your ultimate authority in life? Right? Um, how about my political party? Well, that's not way. Wait, are you a Christian first or are you a Republican first? Wait, are you a Christian first? You're a Democrat first. Are you green or, hey, is green your king or is Jesus your king? Right, right? But I don't care which part. I, I'm just, I'm being just, equal opportunity ambush right now, right? You're like, I'm not asking what you, I'm saying like, how do you decide? How do you decide? How do you decide about immigration? How do you decide about crime? How do you decide about, how do you decide? I'm not saying there are always easy answers, but our ultimate authority should be, what does Jesus think, right? Not what my party thinks, not what my parents think, not what my neighbor thinks, not what my woke corporation thinks. Right? No, Jesus is my king. He's my king, and and he's the ultimate authority. And to the best that I can, I'm going to try to figure out what he thinks. And I'm not going to always get it right, but but at least I know who to listen to. Maybe it's what you were taught in college. No, brother, that's a problem. (laughs) Indoctrination station. How about this? What you learned in church. That's not what I was taught. Who cares? Who cares what you're talking about? What you should care about is what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? None of our traditions are like sacred cows. We should always be open to 
oh, maybe I've got this one wrong. What does the Bible really say? What's, the, what's Jesus really say? How about this one? Well, that just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so now you're the ultimate authority in the universe. <laughs> Men and women, this is one of the most critical issues of our day. <clears throat> is what, who is the ultimate authority in your life? Is it Jesus? Is it his word? Is it his apostles? Or is it something less? Can I tell you, a lot hangs on this because when you get to Romans 12, Paul's going to say this. He says, God has a will for your life. It's perfect. It's complete. It's pleasing to God. He says, but in order to experience it, you have to be renewed in your mind. He says, so don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking, this world's worldview but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so if we read our Bibles like, oh, I like that, and I don't like that, and I like this one. Yeah, that's good, that's good. You're right there, Paul. Oh, you missed that one. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? We're not going to be transformed. Because what we're doing is just bringing our own worldview, and not the worldview of Jesus, the apostles, or the apostle Paul. Amen. So what is your ultimate authority? Let's pray. So Father, we just thank you for the beauty of your word and how it just draws us back time and time again to truth, what is right and good and true. And what I think, I know all of us have times when we look at your word and we, like, we don't like it, or we don't understand this or that, and we, we tend to, like, like what Proverbs says, do not lean to your own understanding. Like we, we lean to our own understanding rather than coming to you and say, Father, I don't really understand this. Could you help me understand that? Could you, could you help me, can we show you your perspective? Because I know that you are good and you're right and you're true. And this doesn't seem like good or right. So would you just like help me be renewed in my mind so I can see it for what it is. And so Father, we just pray that as we go through this series week by week and we tackle these issues that are so critical in our lives and culture today, that our top authority would be you, Jesus that we'd bend the knee to, to no agenda other than yours. We would not bow the knee to, to any, any worldview that's contrary to your truth, which is ultimate reality. We pray you give us the courage and the clarity to do that consistently. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.